I think it has to do with、um, just a viewpoint on the world, really, because they really do just come. Sometimes you'll hear part of a conversation, and it turns into a story. Another time, a piece of conversation becomes some crazy poem. It just depends on you know where it goes. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler, and this is Tony Russo, and you're listening to another episode of So, what's your story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have teacher, author, and poet Joan Cooper. Over the past four years, she has penned three works of fiction, all part of her Lilac Hill trilogy. But recently, she has been pursuing poetry and has had several successes in getting her work published in literary journals. And she's here to chat with us about her latest work. So, welcome to the podcast, Joan. Well, thank you, Steph. When you were here last time, you were talking about your Lilac Hill series, which is a fictional series.、Um, but you're here today because you're doing something a little different.、Uh, you are dabbling into poetry, or maybe have gone back to poetry. Maybe I should maybe say it that way. That's a good way to put it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I actually started out as a poet and、uh, attended my first Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival, which I highly recommend.、Um, they occur every two years, and when I attended my first、um, my first festival, I realized that I couldn't write poetry. <laughs> <laughs> so I walked away from it, and actually, that was the first that I started writing. True fiction. I mean, everybody writes short stories when they're kids,、right. and you have your, you know, your notebooks full of stories. But I became very serious about it、uh, so、after that first one. Just locate us in time. When did you go to the Geraldine R. Dodge?、Oh, geez, that's what I was just. What, to so、say. you're talking at you're out of college, you're out of high school. Oh yeah, I was、oh, a teacher.、Right. I was teaching in Baltimore County at the time,、mm-hmm. and thought I'd try it. You know, it's a classic hippie festival, basically. Right, and、uh, it was probably about sixteen years ago.、And、it's it's tough when you when you realize that you're not doing as well as you thought that you were doing, and and that's to not give up writing altogether is 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 pretty brave、yeah. as it is because a lot of times you'll get you'll get you'll get the.、Uh, You'll get some bad news, or you'll say that this. You'll you'll get some bad reviews or something, and you're like, you know what, this is not for me. And to say, well, let me try this. Let me try a different way to get at what, because I guess poetry and fiction and even nonfiction, the the thing that they all have in common is that we want to get across an idea. And you're like, okay, well, apparently the way that I'm going about getting my ideas across in poetry isn't working for people. Maybe I'll try another. Well, I I met some people like Billy Collins. Oh wow! <laughs>、yeah. Okay, yeah. so there's that. Just poetry <laughs> and fiction, sure, and sure. Exactly. The, the things that they all have and, in common、uh, is that、Lee、we、Young、want、Lee. to get across. And I attended another workshop with Lee Young Lee that was a day long workshop. And what I liked about all of them, and Grace Paley. Oh my goodness! I will never forget Grace Paley,、um, and Lucille Clifton. Just the way they could string their words together, and I knew that I was writing in a poetic way. And I still, my fiction is very poetic in nature,、um, but I knew that I needed to tell more of the story at that point in time、mm. because poetry is very compressed. Sure, sure. And、um, it 
it has a level of control to it that I don't think I was ready for. And I still enjoyed poetry. Mm-hmm. So I became involved in it in a different way. The last eight years, I've been part of Poetry Out Loud. Right, right. Yeah. I was going to ask you if that was a, a part of sort of the inspiration to kind of, you know, go back and, and, and touch those poetry roots. Yeah, and, and I had been teaching creative writing, and we would have poetry slams and um, open readings and things like that. So I was still using a little bit of my poetry there. Because kids are so much more forgiving, and you know, <laughs> and it's nice to experiment with kids. And when you are, you have a tendency to do it in shorter form. Um, it's just easier. You know, your attention span is so much shorter. Do you wonder if also when you're writing things to as examples that you pay more attention to the rules than... Oh, absolutely. Did, but do you think that that improves it for... For presentation, like it's it's better just because a I mean it's better because you're not taking any chances. Is that no no? Um, Maxine Kuman, who I sat in, I actually held hands with her during a Lee Young Lee reading years after my first my first festival. She made a very good point about writing poetry in particular. You must know the rules. You must be able to follow the rules in order to break them on purpose Mm. or break them for a purpose. And uh, so when I hear people, and I know we've been in company where I've heard this, oh, there aren't any rules. Oh, you know, (laughs) um, why do we have to learn the rules anymore? I always kind of want to pull back a little bit. So you have to know, you have to know what's come before before you can make your own. And then after you do, I think you should go as far as you can with it. Mm. No, I, I would totally agree with that. There have been um, authors and poets and people that we've talked to here that sort of echo that same thing. Like you have to learn how the process is. You have to learn how to do these things. There are rules. There are parameters that get set on everything from fiction to poetry and everything sort of in between. If you don't if you don't know how to do it well, like all the people who've come before us, you know, then, then breaking the rules on purpose or breaking them to a point that you like, that's right. You can't really break it until you know, what are you breaking and for what purpose? Yeah. You don't want it to be chaos. Exactly. Exactly. There has to be, there has to be some sort of order within that system. Yeah. I think another thing that's important about that is the process that you go through to learn how to make how to, how to, the process you go through learning how to make the rules, I know for me when I'm writing, it's like, okay, are you serving the narrative or are you just being lazy? Like, okay, this needs – this is not right. Now, is it not right because that's the way it should be or is it not right because you just don't have the energy to change it? And that's – I think that that's, that's the biggest difference. It's I'm not going to – it keeps you from being lazy because you've done all the work. You know that it's hard already. You've done all the work that it takes to learn to do it. And so when you come to that crossroads and you're like, well, that's you, – you can tell whether you're being lazy or not because you know what it's like to not be lazy. And I think that that helps mm-hmm. you make your decision whether you're trying to break a rule or just being a lazy person. While you were talking about that, I was thinking about teaching semicolons. Um, we we're laughing about this because, you know, the dash has become such a fun thing to use. And the rules that go with – you know, do you choose a semicolon? Do you choose a dash? And sometimes 
you know, my students just look at me like baffled because I'm having fun with this. Mm. Right. And, and once you can kind of unlock it, then you can say, well, now you've added some kind of flair to your writing as opposed to having a great big mess, Mm. which we usually start off with. Yeah. You know, but they always look at me and like, you know, you are out of your mind. Well, (laughs) we're going along (laughs) with you anyway. Actually, in, in some of the editing that I've been doing, I've I've noticed that all of a sudden where there used to be poorly placed commas, there are now poorly placed dashes. Yes. I don't know. I'd missed the memo that start using dashes instead of columns. But is, is that your experience as well? You- Please don't. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a big dasher or semicolon. But um, in, in the stuff that you've been reading, like when people send oh their gosh. work to you? Like, yeah, that just started happening like in the last six weeks. Well, yeah, dash the ellipsis. Yeah, and stuff that's <laughs> oh. coming to me. I thought you meant in my own work. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, Andrew Heller. Yeah. <laughs> he is like the ellipses king. I'm, if he's listening, he's absolutely the ellipses king. But I had a question that, you know, we had had a podcast recently where we talked about teaching writing to, to kids. Mm-hmm. And I know that you are a teacher at James M. Bennett uh, yes. Senior High School. You teach over there. And I know that you do a lot of uh, poetry work as an English teacher. You do a lot of poetry work with your with your students. Most of my life is poetry. Most yeah. of your life is poetry. <laughs> so it's interesting to me that you had this experience where you felt like you were a poet. You went to this thing, met people, and said, oh, my gosh, I'm probably not a poet. I'm going to try fiction. I'm going to do fiction for a good long time. I'm just really curious as to what kind of what kind of was it the teaching the poetry out loud was it working with the kids on poetry was it teaching hey here are the rules that i'm not following or or that i've kind of backed away from i don't mean that you weren't following them but uh was it the teaching of poetry was it the poetry out loud and some of those things that kind of kind of got you turn the wheels turning again for you for poetry well most of the collection that i i put together this summer I would say 10 of the poems had been written and I had like this slush pile of poetry and they were intuitive. You know, one of those things, I wrote a poem on a, of all things, a school field trip Mm -hmm. (laughs) last Wednesday to New York and we were crossing the Delaware and all of a sudden there it was. And I think it's actually a halfway decent poem. I mean, it needs work like everything else, but they were intuitive you know, right. this, this little collection. And then our friend, Tara Elliott, yes. um, had James Arthur come in and there was a little contest about, you know, who would be reading with him. And I thought, oh, I can write some of those. I definitely can. Now in the middle of school, that's probably not a wise choice to make, but at least I put them out there and I hadn't right. put poetry out there for years. Right. You know, I've been writing longer works, uh, tried flash fiction. Uh, you've interviewed Mary Power. Mm-hmm. I've, yep. I've worked with her for years in a critique group, and she's the flash fiction queen as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. She's a really wonderful person, just gifted writer. And that's flash fiction and poetry to me are most closely related and so that's why I started to put it out there. And then I thought, you know what? If you can have 20 poems together, why can't you have another 15? 
So I just started putting things together. And I just reread all of it. Some of it's okay, and some of it I'm going to be hypercritical about. Mm. Sure. Yeah. When you were organizing this collection, did a certain theme appear for you, or a certain was there a certain center that everything sort of was kind of revolving around with the work? Yeah, it actually developed into sort of a little weird theme called Moving East. Moving East. Because that's what my husband and I did uh, 12 years ago now. And I know you talk often about been here. <laughs> <laughs> the, the been here's and the come here's. And the come yeah. here's. I'm definitely a come here, but I feel like I belong here. Sure. And uh, I travel to ba- back to Baltimore often. I love Baltimore. I hate to see what's happened in the city. Uh, but I find, and some of the poetry was about this, when I'm there, I just want to be back here. And that's all there is to it. So it's, it was sort of running around that. There's a teaching cycle, but it's about here. And that's right. where the most, you know, most enormous changes happen in my life. Sure. And now, we were talking actually before we got on the air about you were uh, starting to submit it to journals and as, as well, mm-hmm. not not just writing it. Um, so there are two things going now. You're, you're collecting some of the better ones, but you're also submitting them. You want to talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, it's a process and a half. Um, through my critique group, uh, we talked about different ways to put things out there. And I resisted for years duotrope. Mm. Um, sounded like a nice idea. I didn't want to pay for it. You know, yada, oh, so yada. Just so the listeners mm-hmm. know, duotrope is um, a site where you can get the submission guidelines all in one place for all of the literary magazines on the planet. And, and it comes with, go ahead. Yeah. And it's very nicely organized. And I think that's why I stayed with it. I did the 30 day, you can do a 30 day free membership. I feel like an ad, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll contact but, him and see yeah. if they'll give us some, <laughs> toss some money back one year yeah. free would be great. But, um, <laughs> I like the calendar because every now and then I'll have some flaky little piece that I wrote. And I've managed to get through a couple, you know, a couple forms of it. And I like it, but I want to see if there's something out there that would fit it. Right. And you can go to the calendar and say, okay, what is due on, you know, uh, December 5th? And uh, some things are like that. The, the, pe- the piece I just had published was one of the, you know, I found in... It was due in four days, and I thought, okay, I can make myself do this in four days. So did you write that poem specifically for that deadline, or was it something no, you already had and then no, kind of went forward it was a flash with? fiction piece I've written a couple different ways. It's been a lo- It's a novella. Okay. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, it fit what I wanted to do with it. Um, and it's not a poem. It's a flash fiction piece. The last piece went out. But duotrope gives you that, but then they also give you changes in the market, uh, who's now defunct and closed. Right. Um, and they give you some warnings. It, it's really pretty consumer friendly. And it's wow. also, the, the, what what attracted me to it was it will also say you should have heard by now. So, yes. because it, it, I think everyone, I think many people, so I'm sorry, for, for full disclosure, I actually just recently canceled my subscription and the only reason I did that is because it's not really for nonfiction, and so more for the fiction really, poetry. Really geared toward fiction writers and toward, okay. toward poets. 
Um, I got it for essays, and there are some places that take essays, but it just wasn't enough to justify. I'm not productive enough, and there aren't enough. Uh, there are enough places for me to put um, nonfiction essays that I can't find on my own, and it is just sure. five dollars a month. But what was useful to me, the the most useful tool for me, was like you should have heard by now, and it kept track of where did you send this already. So a, you don't submit twice like a moron because it can happen if you're when you're going through and you're like, okay, I meet this criterion, and then you send it, and you're like, yeah, I, you know, I already, I already got a no from them. Like to get a to get a second no on the same on the same story is tough. So it, it tells you it tells you who, to whom you've submitted which stories and when you should hear, and you'll get a little email that says, hey, you haven't heard from so and so yet, because a lot of the publications will say if you haven't heard in six months. Don't be afraid to follow up with it with an email. And so this helps you to stay on top of that. It's a pretty good organizational tool for anyone who's submitting a lot of work. And there's also um, a way that you can favorite a magazine, uh, which is great for me because sometimes what they want that month, I'm not particularly thrilled with. So I won't write for it or find something that I've written and play with it. But I like the tone of their magazine. And that's the other thing I like about it. I've had a tendency to surf through more uh, online magazines and print magazines now than I would have before. Right. So it kind of connected you up with places you wouldn't have been looking before. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Because you know that they're there instead of just, you like, don't type literary magazine into the internet because it'll... No. No. (laughs) Do not Google that. (laughs) And as much as I like poets and writers, I just don't find it very user-friendly. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and uh, the only thing it isn't too good for is longer works, um, like novellas. Right. You know, it, it's not going to be very useful for that. But there are listservs that work for that. Sure. Yeah. So I guess it must have been a real shot in the arm when, you know, you decide to go out there and you, you finally say, okay, you know what, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to step off this ledge. I'm going to submit this piece. And then it comes back and I'm like, yeah, we want it. We're going to take it. You know, you're, you're in. I mean, that has to be a really good shot in the arm to say, I'm going to keep doing this. I made the right decision. I'm going to keep moving forward. Yeah. It makes you feel vindicated. <laughs> yeah. And like you're, I'm and like you're good at it, right? Wasting my time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to have that, no. that sense of, uh, reward and encouragement for what you're doing is always, mm-hmm. I think as a writer, there are so few and far between that when you get them, it's really important to, to have those moments. And I've got to say the feedback from Lilac Hill, the people who read it and liked it, it's, it's wonderful really, because those people will come back to me time after time. I do have a website. It's really silly websites, joandcooper.com, which looks like Joan and Cooper, something like that, but it's really a pretty bad one. But, um, but no, they, they follow the blog and, you know, they read my stories and like the little piece that I published, um, I got a lot of feedback with what's the, you know, I want the rest of the story. Like, oh, that's flash. But how about, (laughs) how about the same setting and different story because I've used that setting. That's a real setting. Mm. Right. I used to stand in that bakery with my grandmother. <laughs> well, and two things. First, let's get a synopsis of uh, the story that you're talking about because we don't know why you said bakery. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the prompt was, are you ready for this prompt? Doorknobs 
1919 and what extraordinary days. Okay, So the story is about a young man standing in the rain looking in the window of a bakery wondering about this young woman who wrote to him the entire time he was away, World War I, and wondering what she's going to be like. And he goes into the bakery, and he meets her, and she says, Oh, you're here to apply for the job. You're a baker. And I'm, I'm not retelling it very well. And he says, Oh, yes, of course. What? And that's basically it. You know, I mean, I, I just probably used more yeah. words than I used in the flash fiction piece. And sure. So what, where, what about this bakery? Can you tell us about the bakery? Well, <laughs> the bakery uh, was on Conkling Street in Baltimore. Uh, when growing up, it was a Greek bakery. And um, my grandmother was an extraordinary person. Uh, she probably, we probably would term her manic depressive today. Um, she'd either be, you know, stoic, staring, I thought she was catatonic for a while, or she'd be up and bubbly and ready to roll. And we would walk all the way from Robert's place. Anybody who's familiar with Baltimore will know. This was probably about three city miles. We would walk all the way up to the avenue, and we'd visit that bakery, and we'd visit, there was Eastern House right on Eastern Avenue, there was also um, a butcher and a toy store and a confectionery. But my favorite place was this bakery mm. because she would inevitably stand there and say, Joan, always remember, look at the floor of a bakery. If the floor of a bakery isn't clean, don't buy their pastries. <laughs> and she'd say this out loud. And I, I remember even like as a six-year-old thinking, I am going to die. <laughs> you know, you, you know right, like, floor, the you. floor is going to open up. Yeah, like, like that, that was your outside voice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she would also drink all the creams at the restaurant. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She's, she sounds yeah. like a character. She so you were able a to, wild thing. Oh, you my know. gosh. You were able to pull all those experiences into the, to the novella piece that you turned in? No, but that bakery has been the setting for a number of different pieces. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And if you go to the, go to the website, you'll see a really strange story about a miracle. Oh, miracles were involved too. Yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to bring out in that is it's an interesting way to keep in touch with your readers with small bits that are Mm -hmm. not in for submission and not published, but in the vein that you normally work in. Yeah. I really enjoy that. Every now and then I'll post a story, get a little bit of feedback. Um, I have, uh, women who, um, I've never met. Um, that, you know, will write me every so often and say, have you done anything more with this particular piece? And I would have to say, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about our previous interview. When we interviewed, I had not finished Lilac Hill Folly, hmm. which is the third book. And I'd have to say, that was a reader situation again. That was my mother-in-law. And she had taken it to her library group. And uh, not that book. She had taken the first two books. And she kept pestering me. Well, what happened to this character? 
I like Tony. What what happens to him in the future? And she kept at it until I kept feeding her little bits and little bits and little bits and then incorporated it into this great big book because that's definitely the longest one yes. that I have out there. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's kind of cool. I mean, to have readers... I think that would be a very cool experience to have readers, you know, I don't want to say pestering you, but... but Mostly they pester so- me to stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they pester you to stop. But I think it's an interesting uh, moment where you have readers that are like, so tell me more. Tell me what's going on. What's, mm-hmm. You know, how, how does this all work out? You know, and... I think that's really a testament to characters that you're building that people, that the readers are connecting with. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, one of the, um, one of the letters I received about the first Lilac Hill was that there's a big aha moment uh, somewhere midway. And then it goes off in a little bit, slightly different direction. And um, (laughs) this woman who I've now become friends with said, I threw the book right across the floor. Then I picked it up and stayed up all night and finished it. And oh, thought, wow. Okay. So she didn't like that turn, but, mm. you know, and but she was the one. Her. Yeah. She was yeah. insistent that, uh, Sarah's in that last one, right? And yeah, of course Sarah was in the last one. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a cool moment where you, I mean, that, even though it must've been that aha moment must've been a twist. It was enough to really. Yeah. You know, even if we hate something that happens in a book, if we're if we're really connected with the piece, even if we hate that moment, we're still going to keep keep pushing forward with it. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time last year reading um I don't want to call it adolescent lit because it's like older adolescent lit. I think they call it like new new adult now or no, something. This is what they would buy for my library for twelfth like graders. Old uh, teen rather old than old teens, <laughs> yeah. Old <laughs> teen lit. That's what we're gonna call it now. <laughs> we'll call it something. But, uh, because uh, I realized that I had stopped reading when my daughter went into more adult Okay. You know, writers. And uh I had stopped reading all this. So for the first time I read people like Matthew Quick or Neil Gaiman, mm-hmm. and I found myself completely immersed. Uh, Maggie Stiefvater, who wrote Shiver, um, just really interesting people. And what I liked was that there is a spot in almost every one of their books where I, I'm so annoyed at what's going on. Either the characters are really miserable, or the plot has this twist that you're thinking, ah, nah. But you keep going because you like the writing and you like the characters enough to keep it moving forward. And I think that's a good goal. I think so. Mm -hmm. Just to return to poetry for a moment, when you are working on – because I assume that you're continuing to put story, to put poems together Mm -hmm. with the eye of toward collecting them. Does the fact that you're you're doing a collection affect your choice of topic or your choice of tone? Does it – is it something that you're trying to make go with what you've already got? Does that, or does everything automatically go together because it's it's how you yeah. do things? I think it has to do with um, just a viewpoint on the world, hmm. really, because they really do just come. You know, um, sometimes you'll hear part of a conversation, and it turns into a story. Another time a piece of conversation becomes some crazy poem. Mm. It just depends on, you know, where it goes. 
in that direction. But yeah, I don't plan anything. And if it doesn't fit in with the collection, it's quite fine. Mm. It might find itself a home someplace else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think I remember back in my early years when I, when I saw myself as a poet, um, luckily I, I kind of got away from that, uh, in college. I, <laughs> I discovered uh, creative nonfiction and was like, well, I'm, I'm done with that mm-hmm. poetry. But I kind of remember one of the things that I, I loved about poetry and it kind of, I guess, circle back to the beginning of our conversation was the way that you play with words in a poem feels a bit different than the way it is when you're constructing a narrative, especially for me as a person of nonfiction, uh, you know, the way that I approach nonfiction, I try to be lyrical with the way that I write, but when you're writing nonfiction, you can't be lyrical the whole way through, or it just is going to be that that's kind of odd. But what I liked about poetry was that ability to, to play with words and the, how things kind of fit. And there's that sort of cadence and rhythm and all those sorts of things that, I mean, I, I definitely see that in the work that you put forward with, uh, with the Lilac Hill series. But for you, how do you kind of immerse yourself in that moment to be able to kind of like open up and, and take the, the stuff that's kind of coming in? I think knowing how to line a poem okay, is probably sure. the most important thing um, for allowing me to put it into that form. And I've found that with kids, once you teach them how to break a line and have fun with it, that it doesn't have to be, you know, your classic rhymey, I hate rhyming poetry, and I should not say that out loud. But um, Except for limericks. And that, that's not the same <laughs> except way. Oh, actually. For, <laughs> except for limericks. Right. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah, once you start to, and you're right, the subject forces itself forward or a verb can force itself forward and it's sort of like that's what that's what drives the poem and it's usually I find one or two words one or two words will just it will trip itself off into a poem where that's the only appropriate form of it I don't have a whole lot of problem writing and that's probably a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like too many words. So you, you, yeah. you're, you're, so you continue to turn poems into flash fiction and then into novellas and then yeah, into novels. Exactly. Or, or what? I, one of the things I brought with me today, I played with, um, it was called Gods and Monsters. And I thought, oh, I have plenty of those. So I started to look at a story that really is a novella. And I managed to get it to 150 words. And it's out there. We'll see if they like it. Mm. But I thought, how in the world did I manage to do this? Well, obviously, at the core of it, there was something short enough, you know, to pull that off. Um, Because at first I thought, I don't know. Where are you going to? Where are you going to begin? And where are you going to stop? And I read it again today and thought, oh, I kind of like that. <laughs> so, and, and a lot of times yeah. they'll say that about poetry. It's just just mm-hmm. peeling away everything but the essence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really feels like what good poetry is. It's just taking the the rawness, the intensity of a thing and kind of kind of just removing all the unnecessary particles to it. So what you're really left with is just the nerve of it, the center. You know. When you start taking it apart, it springs apart. Yeah. Uh, I it's was, really condensed and like packed in. Mm-hmm. I, for, you know, you look at a poem you thought you knew, uh, and this happens with poetry out loud all the time. 
a kid will bring you a poem and say, I think I want to I wanna do this poem. And one of the restrictions is 25 lines or less. And uh, you, can, you also must have a poem that's pre-20th century, which can feel kind of antique when you start to look at mm-hmm. them at first. So I had a student bring me um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, The Kingfishers. Okay. Once we started looking at what the real sentences were, she kept doing that, oh, oh, is that what he's up to? And then we started looking. You can do so much with just an accent mark, and that's what he does, which I think is cheating, but he's dead, so who cares? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> That'll serve him, right? <laughs> That'll serve you and your accents and your dashes and your semicolons. And then I give her a little bit of insight in who he was. And, and she just kept saying, oh, okay, I see exactly where this is going. And he's using, you know, gerunds and <laughs> right. he's completely cheating. But that's okay. You know, it's a gorgeous poem, but it means something. It, it springs apart. So it becomes a lot longer than that, you know, fewer than 25 lines pre-20th century you know, little nut of a poem. And I think there's a, a quality to spoken poetry that you, that you don't really get with a with someone reading you a short story or reading you a, a, a piece of prose. But when you get that poem that someone's reading aloud, there's there's so much you can feel those condensed moments kind of popping out of place or not popping out of place in a, in a negative way, but you can feel them kind of like coming loose and really kind of coming outward. It's just a really, it's a just really cool experience. We've had a couple of poets on the, on the, on the podcast and to hear them deliver their poetry to see it on the page is one thing. But I think one of the unique qualities about poetry is that once it translates over into like a, into that poetry out loud or slam poetry or those kind of things, it really becomes a whole different creature. It's performance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I just reread uh, one of the James Arthur pieces. I have, if anybody's interested, um, the Academy of American, American Poets has a really cool app where you press it and you spin and you get like 20 different poems that you can choose from. And if you're bored out of your mind, it's really a good, <laughs> right, <laughs> a good way right. to spend the afternoon. No, it's, it's one of those things. It's better than, you know, smashing little creatures or whatever it is. We're playing with this, the, you know, the crazy games again. But um, I reread one of his poems, and I remember hearing him deliver it. And it's a completely different poem, flat on the page. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess the if you're going to be a red poet, how do you deliver that? And... Yeah, it's a challenge. You know, it's a real challenge. <laughs> limericks <laughs> coming up with all of these limericks that I have to write for all you people who keep sending in to ask for limericks. Absolutely. So, if you like the show and you like what you're hearing, and if you'd like a little bit of poetry from Tony and me, you can go to our website www.sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com. There's a contact us button. Click on it. Give us your name, a mailing address. Pick a word. Tony will put it into a haiku. I will put... No. Tony no. will put it into a limerick. That is correct. I will put it into a haiku. We will put it on a fancy schmancy postcard. We'll put a stamp on it and we'll mail it to you. You might even come on a pony. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, maybe. <laughs> All right, Stephanie. Well, now this is the part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, Joan, thank you so much for coming back on the show and talking about poetry with us. Thank you for having me. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatYourStoryPodcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.